One day, the CEO of L'Oreal Professional says, I have to come to New York for a meeting. And I go up by myself and I'm dressed like this. I'm just a beauty guy, right? I'm just an entrepreneur. I go into this 575 Fifth Avenue boardroom. It's, oh, oh my God, it's so intimidating. And there's 14 suits around the table and me. And I sit down, two of the suits stands up, comes by me and puts the stack of papers in front of me. So the CEO says to me, Larry, got some news for you. We are going to open our own distribution business in the professional beauty industry. And we are going to buy your company. This is a sell agreement right here. I said, you're going to buy my company? They were going to give me close to $45 million for my company. Had you ever had that much in your bank account before? <laughs> At that point, I was $17 million in debt. He says, if you, you take your time, make a decision, but you will be cut off at the end of the year and you will lose all of the business if you don't sell to us. So that's $16 million that we're going to lose by the end of the year. And I told him to fuck off. This can't be it. There has to be more. Wait, am I crazy? No. If you're yearning for more and working hard to make your dreams a reality, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Dreamcatchers. It's the only show committed to helping you self-actualize and then transcend, leaving you with the legacy you've always desired. Listen in on conversations with successful philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and founders every week as we connect with them for inspiration, education, and direction. Your host, Jerome Myers, is here to help you exit the matrix and transform into a leader of your own revolution. The question is, do you believe your dreams should be real? Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome. When I tell you you're in for a treat this week, you're in for a treat. We've got Larry in with us. Larry, where, where are you from? Where are you right now? Uh, I'm in my office in outside Detroit, Michigan. Detroit, Michigan. I was up there maybe two months ago. I did a keynote talk for the Michigan Department of Transportation, and that was my second trip there. And so we did a family road trip two years ago. We started in Cleveland, Ohio. And no, yeah, it was Cleveland, Ohio. And then we drove all, no, Cincinnati. And then we drove all the way up to Michigan and ended up in Wisconsin at the end. So that is my understanding of up there around the Great Lakes, man. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come hang out with me today. Jerome, it's my pleasure. I mean, you're my first podcast guy. I, I hooked up with you on, on LinkedIn and I couldn't yeah. think of another guy that I'd rather do my first podcast with because you you just have the most fun. It's, it's an honor, brother. Thank you. So we're going to make this not only your first, but your best interview. And with that said, you've got a really interesting story. You've been in the business for 38 years. I, the, my company, TNG Worldwide, has been in business since 1985. And I like to say since 1985, because sometimes I forget. But if I say since 1985, then it's easier to remember. And I've been in the beauty business for over 50 years. And yeah, I, I wrote this book. It's coming out uh, next year. I've been in the beauty business for over 50 years. But my current company, I started in, in the nail business, professional nail business in 1985, when uh, manicuring was taken by storm. But you know how I got my first beauty business? No. You're never going to guess. 
you bought it. Oh, no. No, I got into business when I was nine years old. A few years later, my grandfather owned a hardware store in Detroit. And then my father worked for my grandfather, and he took over the hardware store and then in Detroit. And then I started working in the hardware store when I was nine. And then when I was in high school, uh, my father and I really didn't get along much. And he had a place in Florida, and he spent six months there. And But in, in his... Do you remember the Mod Squad? You're too young to remember the Mod Squad. I don't know the Mod Squad. Oh, my God. That was the coolest TV show back in the 70s. Do you remember Miami Vice? Yeah, oh, I remember that one. Okay, so the Mod Squad, the, the guy's name was Link. The black guy in there, was his name was Link, and he had the biggest afro. Okay. And the afro in the 70s was humongous. And, yeah. and, and our customers came in with these afros, and I was thinking, oh, my God, they have to use these to spray to, to make them shine. So I put in uh, black hair care products into the hardware store. What? Uh-huh. I, I had the manufacturers like Soft Sheen and Carson and Stay Soft Row. They came in, they met with me, and they go, are you crazy? You, you want to put beauty products at a hardware store? I said, look at our customers. This is, of course. And then if, if we bring in these beauty products, we could bring in women to the hardware store too. We became the number one seller of black hair care in Michigan. In one single store. Yep. Yeah. So that's how I got my start in beauty. And after that, I, I, my father almost killed me. And I'm not making this up. It's in my book. Uh, he said, Larry, I just came back from Florida and I walked down aisle six and I saw lipstick. And you put fucking lipstick in, in the hardware store? And I said, yeah, look at the women are buying it. And he goes, oh, there's no lipstick when I'm when I own the store. Oh, well, then too bad. And I kept the lipstick in the store. <laughs> wow. All right. Help me make sense of this. Did the you were the largest seller of, of a single store. In a uh, single in, store. In and Black, so yeah. did that have a significant impact on the revenue of the store? Oh my God. So one thing in business leads to another. And it increased the revenue 25%. And let me give you another quick story for the about business. And because you, you're great. I mean, I love your podcast. You talk about owners exiting. If you're exiting, you have to have a, something to sell. So the hardware store was like doing $2 million in business. A good, local, nice ace hardware store. And next door, there was a laundromat. And you don't know Fago Pop, but Fago Pop back in the day was the most popular. It was a Detroit institution. They had fruit punch and orange and root beer, all these, and, and cherry, all these great flavors. And the laundromat had a vending machine. And they, the bottles were 10 cents back then. But they also had a vending machine for laundry powder because it was a laundromat. And they were buying laundry powder for like 25 cents, 50 cents a box. And, you know, these little tidy boxes. And I said to myself, oh my God, we're going to sell laundry powder in big boxes and, and gallons of bleach and, and all that. So I went to a wholesale distributor and uh, picked up in my station wagon, the course, station wagons back then, and put an end cap at the entrance of the store. And these women came in and they saw the laundry products and they wiped out the end cap in one weekend. So I doubled the, the size of the end cap. I, then we couldn't keep it in stock. And then from there, I brought in paper towels and toilet paper. So all these products came into the hardware store. And oh my God. And I can't tell you, I brought in candy bars. 
and baby Ruth candy bars. Oh my God. I was buying them by the truckload. And so the business grew to like 40% non-hardware and it went from like two to three and a half million dollars. And my father was not happy with anything I did, but he was very happy with the profits he took home. <laughs> so that's the only reason why he didn't kill me. If, if there weren't extra profits, he would have, I would have been dead already and you and I wouldn't be talking today. Oh my gosh. So did you have an actual title for your position or were you just doing it, like running experiments to see if customers would buy the stuff that you brought into the store? Yeah, I was in high school during this time. So I was working the store on weekends and then all summer. And then eventually I graduated college. I was going to be a CPA and I went on one interview and I talk about it in my book and we are, it was a lunch at a fancy restaurant that I didn't even have a suit back then. And they all ordered our martinis. And they, the waiter comes to me and says, would you like a martini? I said, I don't even know. What's a martini? I'm like 21 years old. Martinis back then, martinis were around, but I didn't drink. And I said, I'll have a Diet Coke. That was the end of the interview. Everyone got up and left. So I decided to go into the, the hardware store business with my father because that's why I locked. And we decided that we were going to open a second store. But the first store, I, I worked full time. And that's when I, I, I expanded the offerings. And I learned everything about the, the hardware business. And, but we just, we didn't get along. Eventually, I, we did open a second store in the suburbs. And it was a health and beauty aid store. And it's from that health and beauty aid store that my business from today started from. And that's a whole other story. And of course, it's all, in the, it's all in my book. Can I show you my book cover real quick? Yeah, for sure. Okay. It's, it's called Take a Chance. 101 Entrepreneurial Lessons for Making It Big. But the stories about being a beauty entrepreneur, it's crazy. And so I opened this HBA store in, in the suburbs. And back then, there was a concept called F&M. Okay. And F&M was a deep discount health and beauty aid store. It was before Costco. It was before TJ Maxx. It was before Walmart. It was before any of these things. And they were, they did, People waited in line to get into the store. It was amazing. So uh, I opened a store and uh, took all the concepts of the hardware store, you know, HBA, but, you know, with different customers. And I thought that it was going to be a brilliant concept. It was 8,600 8, square feet. And I decided right away that we were going to bring in high-end skincare products and makeup. And high-end professional hair care products, like hair color. And back in the day, you heard of Aveda, you heard of Redken. So these type of brands, I bring them into the new HBA store. But none of those manufacturers would sell to me. So it was a different concept. So I had to divert the products. And I diverted all the products and put them in the store and customers loved them. But I wasn't 100% sure what customers wanted because it's, it's now we're dealing with all women versus the hardware store, all men. So for me, this is like, oh my God, this is like such a crazy shift. And I put clipboards at the end of every aisle and said, if, if we don't have it, write down on the clipboard what you want. And manicurists came into the store and they wrote on the clipboard that they wanted a gallon of polish remover. They wanted a honey tip nail brush. They, they wanted nail glue. So 
I didn't know about any of this stuff. So my diverter that was buying my hair care products had these nail products I didn't even know about. So I, I put an end cap in, you know, remember the laundry detergent? So I put an end cap in uh, nail products and within the weekend, it was wiped out. So I had to make this end cap an eight foot section and it, that got wiped out. And next thing I know, my diverters I was buying from didn't have enough inventory. I actually called up the a manufacturer in the nail business that made the honey tip brush. And I said, I want to buy a dozen honey tip brushes. And the, mail, the manufacturer said, we only sell to authorized distributors because I'm a retailer. I said, what's an authorized distributor? An authorized distributor sells to salons. Oh, okay. So I'll be an authorized distributor. So how do I do that? So I opened up Nailco inside my retail store. I put a, a showcase in. I put in a 16-foot section. I hired a manicurist. I put together a 16-page black and white catalog, and I mailed it to salons. And uh, I put I had the first IBM uh, computer that that first launched in 1985, and uh, so now I'm a distributor, right, Jerome? And I call up the manufacturer. I say, okay, I'm a, I'm a distributor now. I want a dozen nail tip brushes, honey tip brushes, and they go, oh no, you have to be an approved distributor. We have to approve you. I go, what? No, I'm familiar with the Ace Hardware, right, Jerome? I could buy anything I want. I could buy any hardware product, any beauty product, any candy. And, and I was dealing with Procter & Gamble and Unilever and S.C. Johnson, the, the biggest companies, and they would all sell to me. Now, I just want a stupid nail brush and you have to be a, a distributor. And okay, so how do I become an authorized creative distributor? Because Creative Nail was the name of the company. And they already had two distributors in Michigan. They went sell to me. So I finally, they came in to visit me and I gave them my vision and they finally opened me up. And I said, thank God, now I need a dozen of those honey tip brushes. But anyways, the, the, the store opened in 1981. I opened this, my Nailco in 1985 and it became so big, so fast. This, this, the retail store was doing about 5 million in business. Uh, Nailco, its first year, did about $400,000. And the lease was coming up for the retail store. I had to make a decision. I, I call it a chance card in my book. And I make a decision to keep the retail store or close it and expand Nailco. And I closed the retail store, expanded Nailco. I know, my parents, oh my God, you, you thought my father wanted to kill me then? Now he wanted to kill me again. And my mother, because she was in the, the retail store on Saturdays, she wanted that. But anyways, the store closed, $5 million gone, and I, I took the chance at Nailco. And that was 1985. And here I am, 2023, 38 years later, still doing it. Well, not just doing it, right? So you were, you were selling out. You, you were doing the most sales in Detroit. In a single store, but yeah. now what does your company do now? Where do you rank? Are you just middle of the road, mediocre or what? <laughs> I'm an entrepreneur and there's never mediocre, never middle of the road. You're either, you're either leading or you're following. You're either winning or losing. Now, when I play chess, I say I'm either winning or learning. 
But no, my company, I've changed my name of the company four times since it was Nailco. I've changed the direction of the company at least 10 times. We became the largest distributor of nail products in the U.S., in the world. We became what the largest national distributor of beauty products in the U.S., in the world. The peak of the company hit $86 million. And then we got into nails in 1985 when I started. Then in 1990, got into indoor tanning, which was also booming at that time. 1992, got into the spa business. Then 1995, got into the hair business. So we became a full-spectrum distributor, and we distributed more than 200 brands and had over 10,000 SKUs. So when you were trying to get the nail chip brush, you had to become a distributor. Yes. You weren't the manufacturer. Right. And now you are, you're the largest distributor. You went from being, I don't know how to be a distributor to I am the distributor. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And Jerome, we had the catalog. So we were like the big, we were called the catalog company because we put, I put everything into the catalog. I had my own marketing department. I had 25 people in the marketing department. The catalog grew to 400 pages and we published it twice a year. And in the, the professional beauty industry was filled with what we call full service distributors. So a full service distributor had the exclusive rights in a state to sell like a hair care brand like Matrix, Redken, Paul Mitchell, all the big brands. And but because they were a full service distributor, full service means that they also have to sell nails and skincare, but they never wanted to do that because there was no business in it. The manicure business is only three percent of the total professional beauty business. So I was the king of the niche. I was the king of the 3%. I'll take the 3%, just give it all to me. But the manufacturers wanted the full service distributors business. They don't want to give it to the king of the niche. So the full service distributors had to sell nail products, but their sales people would go into the salons and say, buy my nail products. They go, oh no, I, we buy from Nailco. I said, oh, buy from me instead. I'm right here. Why buy it from a mail order comp company and wait five days for your shipment when I give it to you today or tomorrow? Okay, here's, here's the brands I want and here's the prices I want you to sell it to me for. Oh, I don't have those brands and our prices are higher. I can't match those prices. So get out of here if you can't do that. I'm going to continue to buy from Nailco. So the Creative Nail, which opened me up, this is a true story. Six years later, after they opened me up, they were so upset with my taking over the market from their full-service distributors, they cut me off. Whoa. Oh, yeah. this is the, It's in the book, but they cut me off right at the balls. They just cut me right off. And not only that, Jerome, you know what they did? They copied my business model. They called it Nail Advantage. And they put a big binder together because I was doing nail shows. I was doing nail education. I was doing the nail catalog. I had all manicures working for me. And they sent this binder to all their full service distributors and said, if to keep our brand and to grow our business, you will now become a now advantage distributor. And they had to emulate my business model. So they cut me off and they gave the business model to other distributors. None of it succeeded and they failed miserably. But that was the turning point for me because to compete with them and my lost customers that my customers wanted to still buy from me. I come up with my own private label. And that's how I got into the manufacturing business. And that changed everything. 
I came up with a brand called Club One because the warehouse clubs were just starting out back then in, in the early 90s. Costco wasn't even out in, 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 19, in the early 90s. They came out later, but there was a few. So I came up with a warehouse club and called Club One. And then in the trade magazines, I advertised, compare Club One to creative nail design. And our prices were half the price. And our customers started buying Club One instead of creative nail. So they thought they were going to... We were going to lose the business. No, we gained the business back. So I got cut off 15 different times as a distributor. Whoa. And, and so the, you, do you go to zero revenue when that happens? Oh, no, 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 no. Back? I got to build it back. So Creative Nail is like 15% of my business. So, you know, let's say we're doing $40 million. I just lost $6 million of business. The worst case came in, in when we became a distributor for L'Oreal. And they're, they're the biggest beauty company in the world. So they do about $30 billion a year. But they bought all the hair care companies that they possibly could. In the professional business, they, they, they bought Redken. They bought Matrix. Uh, they own Kerastase, which is the premium hair care brand. But we won the uh, L'Oreal professional business in Michigan. We became their largest distributor in the state of Michigan, $6 million a year doing hair color. And then Matrix was the biggest brand back then. And we took the business from two of the distributors in Michigan, stole the business, it was $10 million a year. And we won that business. So we were doing $16 million just with those two brands. With just the state of hair color and hair products in the state of Michigan. It was incredible. One day, the CEO of L'Oreal Professional says, I have to come to New York for a meeting. And this ties right into your expertise, Jerome. And I go by myself and I'm dressed like this. I'm just a beauty guy, right? I'm just an entrepreneur. I go into this 575 Fifth Avenue boardroom. It's, oh, oh my God. It's so intimidating. And there's 14 suits around the table and me. And I sit down, two of the suits stands up, comes by me and puts the stack of papers in front of me. And one stack is a non-disclosure, one's a non-compete, one's a, this is a sale agreement, blah, 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 sign these, and then we're going to start the meeting. So the CEO says to me, Larry, got some news for you. We are going to open our own distribution business in the professional nail industry, in the professional beauty industry, and we are going to buy your company. This is just, this is the buy this is the sell agreement right here. I said you're going to buy my company. Yes, we're going to give you eighty cents on the dollar for every one of our products that you sell, and we're going to give you sixty cents on the dollar for all the other brands that you sell. So at the point at this time, I'm doing sixty million in business, right? Sixteen million of their product times eighty cents, and for 48 million, 42 million, 44 million dollars at 60 cents, they were going to give me close to 45 million dollars for my company. A lot of people want to unlock their ultimate potential but lack the strategy, support, and stamina necessary to achieve their major goals. They often try to overcome these challenges by trying to do it on their own, causing frustration, fatigue, and eventually failure. We have developed a model for a center life, aka the red pill, to help them bolster their beliefs, gain clarity on their path to success, and provide accountability as they take action on their goals. 
When they take the red pill, they rapidly accelerate attainment of their goals and begin to experience a life of significance and impact. Want to find out more? Hop over to JeromeMyers.co. Now, let's get back to the episode. Had you ever had that much in your bank account before? At that point, I was $17 million in debt. Oh my. Because I, I built my own building. I financed that. I, I financed all the inventory. So yeah, I was $17 million in debt. So no, I, I didn't even know what positive cash flow was. But we were profitable. But the, the problem is being profitable, you, you got to pay taxes. I had to borrow money from the bank to pay the taxes each year. Oh my God. So anyways, he says to me, it's, this is in April. And he says, if you, you take your time, make a decision, but you will be cut off at the end of the year and you will lose all of the business if you don't sell to us. So that's $16 million that we're going to lose by the end of the year. At the point, at that time, I think they had 37 distributors. They all came to New York, with, they had the same meeting. Only three distributors told them no. I was one of the three. And you might ask, why did I exit? Because this is what you ask. This is what you wonder. When's the right time to exit? Yeah. Okay, so the 34 that sold, 50 to 75% of their business was L'Oreal business because they were not diversified. Because I was in the nail business, the tanning business, and the spa business, I was diversified. So it was only 15, 20% of my business was their products. And I told them to fuck off. And everyone said I was crazy. 45, 45 million. million is a big number. What year was this? This was uh, 2004, 2004, I think. Yeah, that's a hmm. big number. It could have been the late 90s. No, yeah, that's a big number, Jerome. Are you kidding me? It's like, I could retire. I was only uh, I was only in the fo- my forties, but I can't retire in my forties. Plus, I had all these employees, three hundred employees. I got to keep it going. So it was like my ultimate chance card when I made that decision. And uh, yeah, so January of the next year happens, and L'Oreal is gone, gone. So you kn- you're 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 down. I, did you have to lay people off? Like, how'd you? Make up for the lost revenue. Okay, so what does an entrepreneur do? Sell something. <laughs> okay, so what's an entrepreneur do, Jerome? To sell something. Market? I, I, huh? This is going to be interesting. Market? Advertise? I don't know how distributors sell stuff. This is interesting. Yeah, okay, so I went to Italy. There's a beauty show in Italy. It's called Cosmoprof. <clears throat> And I went there and I looked for an Italian hair care line. Have you ever been to the Sistine Chapel? No. Oh, you got to go to Rome. You got to, oh my God. Yeah. But do you remember the Renaissance period of art yeah. in the 1500s? You know the names of some of the most famous Italian painters? Yeah. Michelangelo. Yeah. The, remember, there's the most famous artists, right? They all use Italian paint. They're Italian painters, so they use Italian paint. Okay. Right? It's like Parmesan cheese. 
the Parmesan cheese is only available in Italy. Bordeaux wine is only available in France. Champagne is called champagne only if it's made and manufactured in Champagne, France. This I know. So Italy is known for paint. That means that Italy is also going to have the best hair color. Because hair color is nothing more than paint. It's a pigment. Yeah. Or, okay. Okay. How'd you put that together? Because I didn't connect those dots until just now. Because you told me. I wouldn't have connected those dots. Come on. Because I know L'Oreal's competitors are Italian and German. So I went to Italy and I found, a, well, that's what an entrepreneur does. uses his head. So I went to Italy and I found the best number one Italian hair color. Right? This was in May, June, just a month after I got that meeting in New York. Jerome, this hair color is better than L'Oreal. Not only that, I would be the exclusive master distributor for the whole USA. So my cost was less than half what I was paying L'Oreal as a distributor. Oh, man. So this stuff was so good. But remember, we're the number one L'Oreal distributor in the country by state, six million a year. We had the best hairdressers in Michigan. And I took my top 10 customers and I flew them to Italy to meet with the manufacturer because I wanted them to compare this hair color with L'Oreal because if the hairdressers said it's not as good, then I can't sell it. But if they said it's just as good or better and their price would be half, they'll switch. I sent them over there. They loved it better than L'Oreal. They all switched to Cayman. And when January came, all the salons switched over to my hair color. And I didn't lose any of the hair color business. I gained it all back. Oh, yeah. Now, the Matrix business, most of their business was through stores and not through sales reps. We had 30 stores in Michigan that we built for them. So the hairdressers could go to the stores and buy the product the day that they need it. They didn't have any stores, Matrix in Michigan. They needed our stores. So I convinced them to give me a five-year contract to sell Matrix in our stores. And they did. So at the end of the day, Jerome, I didn't lose any revenue and I gained notoriety. And once again, I became the master distributor for this hair color line. And I got to sell it to other distributors and the rest of the United States. Just by going straight to the source. That's it. What gave you the courage to go though? Like that. Most people would have probably been curled up in a ball. That's all my profit. And you're like, ah, let me fly over to Italy and meet your biggest competitor. How did you even get them to take the meeting? Because everybody is looking for business. Now you go to a trade show. Why do, why are there trade shows? Because people are looking for new business. There's always an opportunity. And that's what people forget is, you know, I was only three of the distributors that didn't sell. The other two eventually sold within a few years because they had to, they had no choice. I was the only one left. And, but there's always an opportunity, Jerome. And the, the thing about my book is that I talk about the opportunities and these chance cards that you have to take. And yeah, I mean, it, it was amazing. And we brought these, we sent the hairdressers over to Italy every year for training. And it was intense. It was incredible. 
And uh, they came over here for training. And we, we just had the best education team in the world right here in Michigan. So that's what made us the best distributor. But being a distributor sucks because you're at the mercy of the manufacturer. Ooh. And every time we were cut off, we didn't get paid. They just cut our business off. But we're the ones that grew their business, right? As a distributor, we grow their business. But I learned the hard way. I would never take it back because the, the, the business was, we've always done well. We peaked out at 86 and then we lost all this business. So we got cut off. And then the next year we had TG, which is another $6 million brand. They cut us off. They went direct. The Unilever bought TG. They, not only did they go direct, but they hired our top four salespeople and our sales manager. Oh my gosh. Oh, it, the, it's brutal, Jerome. Being in business is brutal. It's not for the faint of heart. Being an entrepreneur, you wake up and you just grin and bear it, but you have to stay optimistic. And then I've, along the way, you know, ex exiting companies, I've bought 10 companies along the way. And my best, I bought 10 distributors. And, and yeah, that's how I got into the healthcare business. That's how I got into the indoor tanning business through acquisitions. Along the way, I made people multimillionaires. Because when it comes to nails, you've, you've never heard of OPI, right? No. But if you ask your wife, she, she, she knows OPI. She might even know Essie. But OPI, number one nail polish in the beauty industry, the guy started out like me with nothing. And he introduced this nail polish in the uh, early 90s. And it became the best-selling nail polish. And he grew it to $200 million in sales in the salons. Cody, which is one of the biggest beauty manufacturers, decided they wanted to get into the professional nail business. And they bought OPI for $950 million. I was OPI's number one distributor. I was doing over $5 million a year with OPI. I get a call. One day, Larry, this is George. Hey, George, what's going on? I just want to tell you that I just sold my company for $950 million to Cody. Thank you very much for all your past support. Oh, I got to go. Hang, and he hangs up. He didn't even send me a bottle of wine. I, I, I made him a zillion, a, a multi-zillion billionaire, and I didn't even get a bottle of wine from him. I didn't even get a, like a check for a dollar. I didn't even get... And, and then Cody took the business over and destroyed it. Oh my gosh. Essie. Oh my God. Her story, she started selling nails polish for a dollar a bottle. And she worked 80 hours a week answering the phone herself. Anyways, she got the business up to $28 million. L'Oreal decided they wanted to get into the professional nail business. And in 2004, they bought her for $160 million. And the same year that George sold. I'll never forget. Larry, this is Essie. Hey, Essie, what's going on? I just want you to know, L'Oreal just bought my company. Oh, I got to go now. Thank you for the business. I got to go. I go, blah, 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 blah. I didn't even get a bottle of wine from her either. I was her well, number one distributor. told her that she couldn't be nice to you because you didn't sell to them. <laughs> How ironic is that? That they bought her $160 million. For nail polish. For nail polish. And I, I put her on the map. So 
As a distributor, you get nothing for growing the manufacturer's business. Nothing in, when they sell out. And so many of my manufacturers sold out. I ended up with nothing. But now it's okay because the pandemic came and it, we had to pivot one more time in 2020. We were the only, one of the few manufacturers in the beauty business that manufactured PPE products before the pandemic. So we, we manufactured nitro gloves and, and then say hand sanitizer and disinfectant and we had all that. And when everything shut down, all our competitors, which were distributors and manufacturers, they had to shut down too because they were not essential business. So back at the beginning of the podcast, we were talking about women have to get their hair colored. It's the most important thing. And the salons are shut down. Well, what had happened? All these hairdressers started doing it out of their basements. They went to their clients' homes and did their hair color there. They needed supplies. We were the only one that had the supplies because all the other our competitors were closed. So, but not only that, we had face masks, we had gloves. Funeral homes started calling us up, doctors, nurses. It was, we started selling to hospitals. All of a sudden, we were like in the medical business, in the funeral home business. It was the scariest period of, of my life. And we were manufacturing these products. I was flying in masks from China. The prices for nitro gloves, we were selling for $9 a box. They went to $49 a box. And face masks, we were selling for $3.99 before the pandemic. And during the pandemic, they went up to $39.99 a box. But we were the, one of the largest manufacturers of PPE during the pandemic. And we, we helped build hospitals and we saved funeral homes. That's so all my God, I get the stories from the funeral homes and they would go to the hospitals and they're, to pick up the dead bodies. They didn't have gloves. They didn't have disinfectant. This guy left me a voicemail. He said, do you guys have body bags? We don't have any body bags left. This, the, you have no idea. I was working 24-7. I did not want to work 24-7 in 2020. I already was ready just to relax in my semi-retirement at the company. But it was, at that point, I made a biggest decision in my life that I'm just going to be 100% manufacturer. And I cut off all my distribution. Over half my business, I just cut off. Because they didn't have any products that I could sell. They, they didn't have anything. They couldn't manufacture any PPE. They had nothing. So I lost over half my business. Today, fast forward, we went from 140 employees. We had at the peak 380 employees. Before the pandemic, we had 140. Now we have 39. But Jerome, wait, the story gets better. We were the first beauty company to sell on Amazon. And it's all in the book too how I was the visionary and knew that Amazon was going to be the winner at the end. And we were the first company in beauty to sell direct on Amazon. And during the pandemic, our business just exploded. And today, we are one of the top beauty personal care products on Amazon. We have more bestseller Amazon Choice products on Amazon than any other beauty company. And now Amazon, we have the number one selling nitro glove on Amazon. 
we sell between 30 and 40,000 boxes a week. A week? A week. There's 38,000 boxes in a trailer, a full container. Those big trucks, those 18, those called, those are called a full container. 38,000 boxes of gloves a week that they sell. One of the things that we manufactured before PPE was hand soap. And during the pandemic, hand soap was a big deal. But think about travel. Everybody's doing Airbnbs now. We are the number one manufacturer of personal care products for Airbnbs. And if you go on Amazon, our brand is called Ginger Lily Farms. We have the number one selling brand on Amazon. And we're the number one selling product of personal care products in gallon sizes in the U.S. with our Ginger Lily Farmers product. Yeah, our business this year over last year is up 44%. And we, we've now increased our business before the pandemic. So we've regained all that lost distribution business. And you get yeah, the 50% back that yes. getting out and, of the other business? And, and then some. Yeah, How? before the pandemic, we were doing around forty million. This year, we're gonna we're gonna crack fifty five. So most people are scared to let any business go. You, in at least three instances, cut off or turned your back on what seemed to be sure things. How could you be so sure? You can't. That's why I refer to it as a chance card. What does an entrepreneur do? An entrepreneur has to take the chance. And the chance is you go with your gut instinct and you say, I have the right answer. Don't listen to anyone else because everyone, all the naysayers said, I should have sold. I should have never gotten into the hair business. I should have never done this. I shouldn't have done this. But I just said, I made the decision and you stick to it and then you just keep pounding away. And today we only have 37 employees. We have 200,000 square foot distribution center and we have to make it bigger because it's not big enough because of the Amazon orders that come in every week. We, we now ship over a million dollars a week to Amazon because our brand, our other brand that's number one on Amazon is called 4Pro Professional Collection. So if you go on Amazon and, and Google search and then go on Amazon and search for 4Pro or if you go to Nitro Gloves or Massage Sheets or Foil Sheets or just about any product that we sell, we manufacture now over a thousand SKUs. And they're per- all of them are pretty much bestsellers on Amazon. So let me get this. <laughs> I don't know how to be a distributor. How do I, what do I got to do to be a distributor? Okay, I'm a distributor now. Like, <laughs> you're cutting me out of being a distributor, but you're telling me you're going to buy my company if I don't, and if I don't sell to you, you're going to take the business away. Okay, I'm not going to do that. Now I'm the biggest distributor and I'm direct. So there's nobody that's cutting me out anymore. Like you've literally just rolled up the food chain is I don't need any of you. I'm going direct to my customers. I built the business for these other people and they cashed out. I didn't get a bottle of wine. I got a thank you phone call. I didn't get a no. And you know what? All of you, I'm going to show all of you what it should have done. And not only that, but I'm going to get lean. I'm going to get more efficient. This is amazing. I see why you haven't sold. I'm glad you didn't sell. Because it's still growing. It's still going. And I think it it's funny because, Larry, I, I see a lot of entrepreneurs out there and, and they're not trusting their gut. They're not trusting their gut. They're, they've got advisors. They have 
people, they think that they've gotten to a place where folks know more than them and they're out of their league. Their self-image hasn't grown with the success that they've had. And so they feel like somebody else needs to guide them or encourage them. But your intuition is there. Your gut is guiding you. And you are certainly a dream catcher because you exemplify that. Now, I know it was hard. I know there were some challenges. I know that things didn't always go as planned. But you had the courage to go down the path that other people told you there was no answer. And most of the people who were telling you that didn't actually have the experience either. You were out there in the bush with your machete cutting a path (laughs) each and every time. You went to Italy because you thought there might be an opportunity there. Right. You didn't know. They didn't invite you out. No. They didn't say, hey, we're competing with L'Oreal. You're the biggest distributor. We want in. You're like, L'Oreal said, if I don't do this, they're going to try to, they're going to try to end me. And literally you fought, you're a warrior. This is phenomenal, man. I'm I'm so grateful to have you on the podcast. I usually wrap these things up. We're going to have you come back because I want to get, I want to get some more stories out of you and get closer to the book when it launches. But the last question I like to ask on these episodes is what's the one thing you want the listeners to take away from this? I went on my rant. I got on my soapbox, but. I'm sure there's one lesson that you want the listeners to take away from this episode. Okay, so my book is filled with 101 lessons, and you want me to pick one lesson. The biggest, the one, the one. This is the one, okay? And to me, metaphor, sports is the best. Because I think people relate to sports metaphors better than anything else. And my 11-year-old, he was playing soccer when he was eight, nine, and 10. And he was the best, you know, the little kid soccer. I don't know, your two daughters, did they play soccer? Yeah. Okay, so you understand the whole thing with soccer. But now he's 11 years old, sixth grade on the football team. And there's so many kids that want to play football. There's five football teams for sixth graders, 20 on a team. So that's 100 sixth graders just in his school district. That's how competitive it is. And he is not a starter. He is not good enough because he didn't start playing football early enough. He played soccer. But these other kids, they were playing football when they were six, seven, and eight. And now he's just, he's not only he's not a starter, he, he plays like three or four plays the whole game. And he went from being a star in soccer to a sideline guy in football. And here's my my life lesson is in sports. When you're on the field, play to win. Always. Because if you're not on the field and you're on the sidelines and you're watching, there's nothing you can do. And the coach puts you in the game or takes you out of the game based on your performance. When you own your own business, you're an entrepreneur, you're the coach, you're the player, you're everything. And if you're going to be on the field, play your fucking best. Anything else is not good. And the moment that you can't do your best, get off the field and do what you say. Sell the company. And that's the time for you to get out. I had a friend I just talked to the other day. He started his business as a food franchise. He has got up to 80 locations. The pandemic crushed him. And uh, a 
couple of years after the pandemic, he regrouped and private equity came to him and wanted to buy him out. And he said, okay, this is a good time for me. I've had some bad times of the pandemic. I've been doing this business for 25 years and I'm going to sell to private equity. But this is another lesson. And I think this is really good for your listeners, Jerome. He started a CPG product for his company. It's a franchise, a CPG consumer packaged goods. So he it was a franchise for uh, soup. They go in there to get a hundred kinds of soups and bread and sandwiches and so forth. So he decided he's going to package soup and sell it to supermarkets. So it's a sideline of his. And when he went to the private equity, he said, you could take my franchises, you could take my stores, you could take everything. Just let me keep the CPG. Let me keep the, the packaged soup. And the private equity didn't want anything to do with supermarkets. They didn't want anything to do with that. And they agreed to it. So he exited his company successfully, but yet, because of non-competes and because of all the stuff that's going on these days with legal, he was able to continue on to sell his packaged soup. To, and now that's what he's doing. So another life lesson is if you're going to sell your company, try to find a segment of that company that when you sell that you can keep, latch on to and keep and move forward into your next career path. Those are two solid lessons, Larry. This was a great episode, my brother. Thank you so much for allowing us to be your first interview on what's going to probably be hundreds, maybe even thousands as you go on. Well, Jerome, you have no idea how, how happy I am to be on your program. And yeah, you've, you've done amazing work. And I think you're just starting too. You got a whole universe of podcasting ahead of you too. So I, I, I just like to watch your success too. Thank you, Larry. To the listeners, your dreams should be real. We'll catch you on the next episode. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate, like, and share. Perhaps someone you know could benefit from what we've discussed. Until the next time, remember that your dreams should be real.